friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and in the second segment of the show, we'll be talking with the superintendent of the Archdiocese of Boston Catholic Schools. His name is Tom Carroll. We get to talk to him about one of my favorite subjects, the great success of Catholic schools during this COVID pandemic, the way they're doing amazing work while public schools stay shut down, and also about a very interesting academy that he's spearheading opening this fall. It's an online academy. But first, we are going to talk to Roger Severino. He is a pro-life attorney who works and has been working to advance civil rights for all of us. He was the head of the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of HHS during the Trump administration. The Biden administration is attempting to remove him from the Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States before his term ends. He was just reappointed to a three-year term. So now he has filed a suit against the Biden White House. Welcome to the show, Roger. Hey, Gracie. Roger, this has been a very complicated last few weeks for you. You've seen the end of the Trump administration in which you did so much good work, and, and I want us to get into that later on. But lately, you've been forced to file suit against the Biden administration. Please tell our listeners um, how this came about and why you are filing a suit. It has been a consequential month for me, indeed. So it was a sprint to the finish at the end of my appointment as the head of the Civil Rights Office at the Department of Health and Human Services. That was an amazing run. We accomplished so much for conscience, religious liberty, disability rights. Very proud of that. And then there was an interim period where I was reappointed to the Administrative Conference of the United States, which is an independent federal agency that advises on good government. It has law professors, practitioners, regulators. I was a regulator for four years at HHS, so I was highly qualified for the job. I was a Harvard Law School graduate, and I was reappointed because I was originally appointed in August of last year, reappointed after I resigned my commission with HHS. I was reappointed as a civilian, and then I joined the Ethics and Public Policy Center as a senior fellow, and on the first day of my new position in the private sector, I get a notice from the White House saying, President Biden would like your resignation from your position on the Administrative Conference of the United States. That's within pretty 24 direct. Hours, yeah. So within 24 <laughs> hours, I filed a lawsuit to prevent that because my term for ACUS, the Administrative Conference, is for three years under federal law. Congress said my position is for three years. It has no provision saying the president may remove me whenever he likes. That's the point of having an independent agency to have an independent voice to give the best objective information. And his move to try to remove me is really vindictive and petty. I'm not in the White House. The position doesn't have actual policymaking authority. I understand the president gets to appoint his own people for truly executive functions. This isn't a real executive function. It's advisory. And to try to politicize this and go after me is petty in the extreme. And it betrays his promise of unity and healing that he said during the inauguration and beyond. This is absolutely divisive. This council is actually non-controversial, but he's going out of his way to go after me and others, contrary to law, and that's why I sued. Roger, when I look at the way that you're being treated by the Biden administration, it seems to me that it's just another manifestation of the incredible vindictiveness with which the left is treating the right. Yeah, I, I think this 
is very much a manifestation of cancel culture. President Biden is reaching out to a small independent agency that doesn't have any real executive function to try to make a point, to have nothing to do with anybody that had anything to do with Trump or maybe because I'm Christian and conservative. It begs the question of why he's being so petty when the Trump administration didn't do that to the Obama people. President Biden said he was about unity and bringing people together. No, he's about canceling. And this is clearly evidence of precisely that. It is an advisory position. It's not politically aligned in one way or another. And it's all about keeping the administrative state um, healthy and honest and just. Right. It's about things like ideas for transparency, greater input into the regulatory process. We are governed more by regulations than by laws. This is not how the founders envisioned it, but the regulatory state is now really where laws are made. I was a regulator. I know that that's how it actually works. And that's how the American and, people uh, encounter government, through the morass of regulations every time you try to interact, right? Or or go out into the public square or build something, <laughs> you encounter government through all these regulations. Precisely. Think EPA, think banking, think environment. It touches so many factors of daily living and it's all through regulations. And regulations were not passed by Congress. They're promulgated by agencies. And my role on the administrative conference of the United States is to make that process more effective make it more accountable. Not because I've had any power to make it happen, because I could give advice based on my experience. That's it. So what is President Biden afraid of? What does he not want to hear come out of my mouth about good government? Again, this is not a controversial issue. It's, it's a, about the regulatory process. In fact, it's something only, you know, law geeks could really love. Administrative <laughs> yes, law. To agree. This, is, this is, it gets into the nitty gritty of the Administrative Procedure Act or the Paperwork Reduction Act and, and, you know, retrospective review of regulations, all these topics that don't make the front pages by and large, they're very important and you need skilled experts to deal with it to make our democracy work better. And but under, this is not a hot button issue. Under what, what, when you sue, what are you accusing the, the White House of doing? Of being uh, of, personally inimical to you or? Of, of violating the statute. The statute, so the statute itself. Yes, the statute that established the administrative conference, it's the Administrative Conference Act, says I have a term of three years, period. That's what it says. Three years means three years. It also allows me to stay on after three years if there's no until there's a successor appointed, mm -hmm. which means it's not just an expiration date that it goes poof after three years. It means I get to stay on until the president reappoints somebody. Could be me, it could be somebody else. Um, But it doesn't mean that he could remove anybody at will. And it's very important to know that President Trump did not remove council members appointed by Obama. Mm -hmm. he, let, he let them run through the full three-year term, even if they were mid, midway. And I think we can't live in a world where one party has one set of rules and another party has to live by a different set of rules. That's not just. Either the rules are the president gets to remove everybody at will, and independent agencies aren't really that independent, or we all play by the same rules and independent agencies you know, are independent and three years means three years. So that's another really important facet of this case is having consistency. Uh, and I'm, I'm dying to find out what the president is gonna say in his arguments in court to justify his actions. And you know, there, there could be all sorts of reasons why he did what he did. So far, the things I've heard don't really make any sense. You know, why target me and the other council members? 
but Roger we, clearly qualified for the job but you know it, it's certainly a very divisive act for him to do but Roger uh, I have to say and maybe our listeners don't know the extent to which this is true but you have made yourself very obnoxious to a set of people in Washington um, people who but aren't I, but I've been de- I've endeared myself to others. <laughs> yes, you certainly have. But to people, you've made yourself obnoxious to people who don't understand civil rights to extend to people of faith or pe- and those who don't understand that justice should be meted equally when we encounter people who think differently from ourselves, um, who think of, of equity only on racial terms and not on on other kinds of, of terms that are also important. Um, even, you know, you're so much of your work has been uh, so it's been such a vast such a wonderful thing for people for people like me for instance as a doctor I loved your work in, at the civil rights office defending uh, doctors nurses pharmacists from being made um, to to do their duties uh, and and violate their, their their strongest moral and ethical codes of not harming their patients um, and and let's face it you've made yourself very unliked unlikable um, to people like the uh, that are running the Biden administration it, it's true that the Biden folks clearly haven't liked many of the things I've done because they've signaled that they want to roll back much of the work you mentioned. Conscience and religious freedom was heart and soul of, of some of the things I did to further institutionalize those First Amendment protections. They should not be rolled back. It's foundational. It's part of our Constitution, and it's popular. Nobody wants to mandate that doctors and nurses perform abortions against their will. Or I should say very few people. There are some extremists that that absolutely want to do that. But by and large, there's a, a strong national consensus that you don't force people to perform abortions. You don't force people to pay them either. Yet President Biden has said he wants to reverse some of these laws protecting conscience, such as the Hyde Amendment. Mm-hmm. Right out of the gate, he's now flip-flopped on that issue that says you don't use taxpayer dollars for abortion. And he's up, he's nominated Javier Becerra to be head of HHS and Dr. Rachel Levine to be the Assistant Secretary of Health, both of which were essentially antagonists uh, of mine during HHS because we had differences in policy. I actually issued notices of violation against Javier Becerra for going after pregnancy resource centers and discriminating against them, for forcing nuns to buy abortion coverage for fellow nuns. That's actually one of the cases. And it costs them 200 million per quarter in Medicaid funds, which I wanna see the Biden administration follow through with all of these things. But by appointing the people I went after and held liable, it's, it's signaling a very strong retreat from protecting the dignity and sanctity of human life and coercion of people who disagree with his views on abortion and Javier Becerra's views on abortion, which is essentially abortion on demand and paid for by taxpayer money. You know, that that place, that appointment of Javier Becerra to that role, really, it, it gives me nightmares, Roger. Um, that man stands for everything that um, we find dangerous about the progressive agenda the way it runs roughshod over all our most uh, tender values that we have in, in the United States. The values of, of preserving that space, the public space, the public square for people of all stripes, of people who believe different things and, and should be able to, to go out into the world and, and, and live out their, their selves in, in the public square. Yeah, you should be able to be your true self 
when you become a professional trying to save lives. Exactly. Imagine forcing a nurse, and we had this case in Vermont. The University of Vermont Medical Center required a nurse to assist in an abortion. And we enforced the law saying that is actually unlawful. You can't receive federal funds. People who enter the practice of medicine to save lives being forced to take life, Mm -hmm. that's just untenable. And that's why I launched as part of my start at EPPC, a new initiative, the HHS Accountability Project, to be a watchdog, to make sure that HHS doesn't forget its mission. Its mission is to further the health and well-being of all Americans. And we made sure during the Trump administration that included everybody from conception until natural death. We made that explicit in our strategic plans. And we put our money where our mouth was. We actually defended all life from conception to natural death, from unborn life to uh, children born with disabilities who were being neglected by doctors and not treated, to people at the end of life. We worked so hard on crisis standards of care to make sure people with disabilities would would not be rationed away care because people thought they would be uh, wasted Mm. because some people are quote unquote less worthy of receiving medical care and having their life saved because of their disabilities. And we pushed back and formed an an incredible coalition between pro-life people, disability rights community, civil rights folks, and we did so much good to push back on a utilitarian ethic. I literally left the proposed regulation for disability rights on these issues dealing with the end of life on my desk with a bow on it for my successor to take up and, and build upon. So the disability rights movement is so strong and it has so much overlap and synergy with the pro-life movement that I think we have real potential to hold the Biden administration accountable to to fulfill its promises, it says it believes about civil rights. So at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where you are going to be working now, um, you're going to be heading um, this uh, organ- this uh, department where you're going to be looking at HHS and holding its feet to the fire? Yes, the HHS Accountability Project. And are you afraid, when I think about HHS under Biden and under Javier Becerra, what I'm afraid of is not is not even that they're going to uh, stop paying attention to the civil rights of religious peoples and conscience rights of, of doctors. What I'm afraid of is they're actually going to weaponize the HHS in order to um, to really ram into place in, in, a, in a cemented kind of way some progressive uh, ideologies that 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 could be very that are very harmful i think to people in general do you do you worry about the hhs being weaponized that way it, it's a battleground and with the appointments i mentioned of becerra and of levine it, i'm afraid that ideology may be trumping science mm-hmm. if they're, they're going to be pushing an agenda that ignores science with respect to things like human biology and it also ignores the law with respect to conscience and shunts aside people with disabilities because they think they're not worthy. These are all terrible signs. And I was dismayed that we had two proposals on the website with respect to disability rights. One that dealt with infant lives, every child born alive should not be denied care regardless of disability, and a request for information on end of life, on transplants, on assisted suicide, on making sure parents don't lose custody of their children because of stereotypes about disabilities, they're gone from the website. Why would really? the Biden administration take down when there's a notice of proposed rulemaking requesting comment that's in the Federal Register and a request for information? They were taken down. 
and and people should be outraged. And this is this is an issue that should unite people on the right and left. Everybody's created equal. We all have human dignity, and it it doesn't matter if we have a disability. We shouldn't be cast aside when it comes to rationing or life-saving care decisions. There's been too many horror stories where not every doctor has their patient's best interests at heart, and that's why we need to have laws making sure that, for example, when a parent is begging for their newborn child to be treated, doctors don't simply turn, turn aside and say they're better off dead and let them die. There have been cases where that has happened. There was a violation of EMTALA, um, when I was there, where, where doctors refused to treat newborn children despite the parents pleading because they were born premature and didn't even do a screening. And that's a violation of law. Uh, and we want to hope that the Biden administration recognizes that and protects every life, no matter their, their circumstances of birth. I, what I'm afraid of is that people who hold these progressive ideologies, they... Um they they talk a, a good game about um, respecting all lives, whether they're disabled, but then they come up against things like abortion and suicide, suicide and euthanasia, and then all their desire uh, sort of evaporates, and they and instead they they want to embrace as much liberation as possible, as much autonomy as possible around those really those death issues, which is very strange, but it, it does seem to be happening again and again. Yes, and it's it's sad to see that if somebody comes to a doctor and says, I'm thinking of killing myself, the normal standard of care is to give them psychological help, psychiatric help, in some cases, even have them involuntarily committed and so to prevent them from killing themselves. But if it's in certain states, a person with a terminal illness, which is almost by definition a disability, comes and says, hey, I'm, I'm thinking of ending my life, they're offered suicide drugs and they're not given and any of those other standards of care, that's that's a question that I, I want to see asked and answered to make sure that there aren't quality of life judgments put in there saying a person with a disability's life is less worthy of saving. And there's been too much of a sad history of mistreatment of persons with disabilities in the medical field going back decades when there was forced sterilization in the 1920s, Buck versus Bell, Supreme Court case, then institutionalization in the 50s and 60s. We ha finally had the ADA in 1990, and it's been a, just a long, hard-fought hard struggle, which still exists today. So one of the, the crisis standards of care, these triage policies, as COVID was ramping up, one of the states said, if there's a shortage of ventilators, persons with, quote, profound mental retardation, end quote, using that archaic language, would be ineligible for ventilators. Hmm. Could you imagine that? Somebody with Down syndrome? would be flatly excluded and said, sorry, you're not gonna get a ventilator because of your disability, period. Doesn't matter if it'll work, it's, it's too, too bad because uh, we think somebody more worthy should get it. We intervened, they changed their policies very, very quickly, but that's what we've been fighting against. Um, and I think there is an, a, a, a bipartisan movement that has to come forward and hold the Biden administration accountable because it's pro-life, it's pro-disability rights, pro-civil rights, and, and there I'm hopeful we'll get some movement. On the life issues, on gender identity, I'm less hopeful, given the, the things I've heard and the appointments they're trying to make, like Bracera and, and Dr. Levine. Uh, but there's always hope that, that first, those folks I don't believe are, are the right people, because I think ideology is gonna uh, trump science in, in many of their decisions, especially Becerra. 
what are his qualifications to be HHS head? He doesn't come from a healthcare background. He's a lawyer. He butted heads with me, and I found him in violation of laws that HHS enforces. I mean, that's that's his claim to fame in terms of uh, HHS was being on the wrong side of the law multiple times. And that's not the person that should be the head of an organization that's supposed to serve everybody for, that should be focused on health and human services and not ideology. And Roger, what is your your new thing at the EPPC? What's it going to consist of? Uh, monitoring, commenting, and pushing for transparency. So I have tremendous experience having been on the inside, and we're, we're getting allies to come help us as well to make sure that a, they're, they're being watched. That's part of democracy is making sure where policy comes from, which is through agency action and regulations. People know what's going on, right? Elections do have consequences. And if they start putting bad folks in positions of power, there's always a tendency for people in that position to try to hide what they're doing to make sure it doesn't get public scrutiny. Part of our goal is to make sure that they are accountable, which means shining light on what HHS does on the issues so many Americans care about, conscience, religious freedom, proper distribution of healthcare, uh, health information privacy. I was the HIPAA regulator as well, which is crucially important. So those are some of the, the main issues as well as civil rights. Once we get the information, help make it public, to of course earn media and things of that sort, white papers. And I also wanna write a book uh, and that's gonna be the lessons I've learned as a conservative, as an Orthodox Christian in government and how to be effective while not making enemies along the way. And that's one of the things I'm very proud of is I was able to build coalitions with some unlikely bedfellows and it's worked out wonderfully. So you could you could stick, be true to your principles and uh, actually pick up some friends and allies along the way. Yes, you're gonna get blowback and you're going to fight, find resistance uh, and, and on the inside and outside, but there are ways to overcome that and there's a way of doing it with charity. And mm -hmm. whatever you do, doing it with charity and as much as you can with grace and understanding. So there was, I was very proud of one of the early talks I gave was with my predecessor, Jocelyn Samuels. She's now in the EEOC at the Williams Institute, which is the leading LGBT think tank. And I presented at one of their conferences to a rather hostile audience, but I thought it was important for me to go there to show that I respected them, mm -hmm. even though I didn't think I'd be convincing many people, but to at least show them the human side of me to help break down some of the preconceived notions. And I think to that extent, it was successful. And we think we need more of that civil discourse. And part of that is being able to meet ourselves wherever we are, but with the facts behind us and made the best argument win. I like the way that you are holding on to disability rights as something that can join both sides of the aisle. Um, that's that's that kind of, of um, bridge building, no? That that um, approach it, that allows the two sides to approach each other in a human way when you can find those points in, in common. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's about bridge building to the extent possible. And it was an incredible confluence of events. We had COVID that came out of nowhere. And then the question was, what do we do with the allocation of scarce resources? And there's always a temptation to do the wrong thing mm -hmm. during an emergency. Oh, absolutely. To, yes, to, to forget our civil rights. That's when we need them most. 
And there was that temptation to say, hey, we just need to save the most useful lives. We need to save the, the most uh, the life years was one of the concepts as well. You've lived long enough, so we're gonna do all our, res all our resources to middle-aged people over older Americans and talk of blunt age cutoffs. And if you, if you don't reach a certain age, even if you're a marathon runner and you could survive the treatment, sorry, you're, you've, you've lived enough. You know, so we pushed back hard on those sorts of concepts. And I think we won the National Academy of Medicine and the AMA came out with guidelines with our assistants that were wonderful, that supported the fundamental dignity of every single person. And that was a coalition that we built that, that should last, but it all depends on who's in the office. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's unfortunate that one, it did in many ways depend on who happened to be in my director's chair. I worked so hard over four years to make sure that it would not depend on who happens to be sitting in a position of authority, that these protections are institutionalized. So we launched a conscience and religious freedom division. We issued our proposed regulation for disability rights. We did a request for information so that we institutionalize these protections because it should not be a partisan political issue. It's foundational, it's in the law. It's part of human rights, and it's the right thing to do. What more do you need? Well, Roger, I'm sorry you're not at HHS anymore. I hope that they're not able to unwind so much of your amazing work that, that I loved watching over the last few years. And um, we wish you a lot of luck at the EPPC, especially as a watchdog of the HHS. I think they're going to need a lot of watching and a lot of, <laughs> a lot of exposure of, of what's going to go on in the future. And also, we wish you luck with your um, lawsuit. It sounds like the Biden administration has treated you very shabbily. And, and I hope that uh, you're able to prevail there. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not one to be bullied, even by the <laughs> president himself. So I'm really looking forward to see how he tries to explain his vindictive actions in court. And uh, I also hope to see HHS stick to its principles and not abandon its commitment to defending life at all stages. It's, it's too important. So we'll see what happens, but we're off to a great start so far. Well, thank you for coming on, and we'll be looking out for more news from you. Maybe you'll come on and tell us all about winning your lawsuit later on. Hopefully. Thanks, Gracie. Thank you. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. My good friend, Maureen Ferguson from the Catholic Association, joins me. We also have Tom Carroll. He's been in the headlines for a while now, given all the great work he's doing as superintendent for the Archdiocese of Boston schools, which have shown a light to the rest of the country during the pandemic. He's here to talk about that, his great success there, as well as an exciting new academy that's starting up this fall called Lumen Verum Academy. So welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. Glad to be with you. In the position that you occupy as superintendent of schools for the Archdiocese of Boston, how did you feel when the pandemic first struck and how did you find a way forward in such a successful manner? 
Yeah, initially when it hit, we actually were the first ones to close schools. So we closed our schools before the mayor of Boston did and before the governor ordered them, uh, just because the uncertainty and how fast it was spreading. But after we went through that initial period, we became strong believers that the kids just had to get back in the classroom. So for us, it was never a question of, do we want to go back? It was just a question of how do we go back? And as soon as the governor gave the green light for all schools in Massachusetts to go back in the fall, we just started to figure out how would you do it safely and how do we handle the technology piece as well? And so we mobilized. We have 100 schools. We serve uh, 31,500 kids. We have another 4,000 adults in our building, including faculty and support staff. We're the second largest district in the state geographically. We're the, we're the first largest geographically, the second largest in terms of student population after Boston. And we educate almost 70% of all the kids statewide who are attending Catholic schools. So we have a lot of complexity and so forth. But the decision was the kids needed to get back to see their friends. They need to get back with their teachers and they need to get back to getting the education that we had promised them all along. And that remote for most kids was not working well and causing all kinds of problems. And so that's what we set out to do. And then... We were before, when the COVID first hit, it had a devastating impact on the archdiocese generally and specifically with the schools. Recalls the opening line of Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times and the worst of times. In our case, it was the worst of times first, which was the spring. And then it was the best of times after. And what triggered the best of times is the teachers unions and the districts announced on July 15th that they were going to open school late by three weeks because they needed more time to plan. The irony of teachers asking for an extension on their homework was not lost on at least me. And then they also indicated that when they opened, they were going to open remote, meaning they weren't actually opening. And so the parents were just having none of it. And so our phone, when that hit the evening news on July 15th, across 100 schools was a very large geographic territory. Our phone started ringing off the hook in every single school, and it didn't stop till the third week in October. So we went for, we were having a very large expected drop in enrollment to from July 15th forward, we gained more than 4,000 students. Uh, one of the largest, not the largest enrollment surges uh, caused primarily by public school parents that were shopping for in-person instruction for their children. We also decided early we were going with in-person. We decided it loudly. So we were quickly viewed as the in-person option within the Boston marketplace. And secondly, we invested heavily in technology because we didn't know how the virus was going to play out in the fall once you came back into the flu season. And we wanted the capacity, if we were going to be forced to do virtual, to do it at a much higher level than we did it in the spring. And also, we wanted to be able to serve people who, for reasons of who's in their family, could be an older relative, like a grandmother or grandfather, could be somebody who's immunosuppressed in their household uh, that really should not be within a school environment for risk of bringing something home. Every single person was given the option of in-person instruction, but we also gave everybody the option of staying at home if they wanted. So basically, we just we were all believers in school choice and parent choice, and we gave them a set of choices. 95% of the people chose to be in-person, roughly 5% not. That 5% diminished over time. As I 
I thought it would because as kids were sitting at home watching all of their classmates in the classroom, they frankly pestered the heck out of their parents to let them go back to school. And so they became our kind of best advocates for getting more and more kids in school. Tom, one thing we've seen across the country is the teacher unions, the teachers organizations that have pushed back against reopening schools, even though the children need it desperately and, and the parents also need it desperately. How did the, the teachers in your Catholic schools react when they were told that it was time to go back to work? Most of them wanted to go back. Some people, a percentage of teachers were nervous as going back, just like a percentage of parents were nervous as well. We took the position right up front that it was a bona fide occupational qualification that if you want to be a teacher, you had to show up in a classroom. And if you if you weren't ready to do that, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> you can't, it's like if you want to be an anchor for a TV show, you can't not show up, right? So, and just leave dead airspace. So that was our position. So some teachers ended up moving on and there were plenty of people that were willing to step in. Uh, the teachers unions, I think most of their teachers wanted to come back. And I think a minority did not. And the one thing about teachers unions is everybody has to be treated exactly the same way. Hmm. And so because they had a vocal minority that did not want to go back, they decided to hold everybody, you know, out of the schools. And it was really a political decision. So I, I didn't fault them when we opened and they didn't. I, I thought it was a bad decision. It obviously benefited us in a pretty huge way. But I didn't fault them. But as it became clear over time that what we were doing was working, the evidence just piled up week by week by week that we were having. We were getting what I call outside-in cases. Somebody gets contaminated in the community outside the school, they bring it in, we quarantine them. And the risk is, and we can't do anything about that, really, frankly. But what we can control, we hope to control with the health protocols, is when they come in, that the schools are arrayed in a way that if somebody walks in and is contaminated, that it doesn't spread throughout the school. And we went two and a half months without a single case uh, COVID spreading from an outside in case to somebody spreading it once they walked in the school. We eventually had a few cases, a handful of cases. Right now we have zero active cases despite having 35,500 people in our schools. So the, the whole spread uh, issue, which is what everybody was paranoid about, the CDC a few weeks ago, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out last week and just said there's no substantial risk of spread at all. So once that became clearer and clearer, the governor was very surprised at what we found. And then he changed his policies. We used to have red zones. If you're in a red zone, which is kind of like a high contagion area, you're like automatically supposed to close. Well, we didn't close. And our argument was pretty straightforward, which is in a high contagion area, we are the only safe place for those children. The worst thing you want to do is to keep them in the community where it's running wild. And the one thing I joke that Catholic schools do well at all times, even without having as many nuns as we used to have, is we know how to teach kids how to follow instructions. Mm -hmm. And creating a safe environment of pandemic is all about having a set of rules and having them followed religiously. That's what we've been doing for 150 years. So it turns out that that kind of central feature of Catholic schools and discipline and structure is a pretty handy feature in a pandemic. So it worked well. So the governor rolled back his red zone designations, became much more permissive, came to believe that, as I had been arguing, that the safest place for a kid in America is to be sitting in a Catholic school that's following the health protocols. And I think we've proven that. So now the irony of the Catholic school is the science, the people following the science and the science deniers 
are the people in the public schools. That's right. It, it's such a beautiful story of the way Catholic schools have led the way on something that could hardly be more important, the education of our children. And it's just so tragic the way that underprivileged kids have really suffered the most in the pandemic with the public school closures. And it's been so great to hear your governor there in Massachusetts praising the Catholic schools. I, I feel like he's praised them many times. And really, the the teachers in Catholic schools are real heroes of this pandemic. But but like you were saying earlier, it's sort of a good news, bad news story, the story of Catholic schools over the last year, because despite in some places, like in your schools, the phones were ringing off the hook, parents of public school children looking desperately for an in-person option, but yet nationwide, there's been this drop-off of Catholic school enrollment. I'm wondering if you could explain that to us a little bit. Is it just because of the economic devastation caused by the pandemic and tragically, the schools that have closed, the Catholic schools that have closed, are those that serve the underprivileged kids in a lot of the big cities like Los Angeles and Chicago, I think. So, So can you Tell us about that trend a little bit. Why, on the one hand, is there such a great story, but on the other hand, so many Catholic schools were forced to close? So we have, yeah, the estimate is uh, roughly uh, 200. We were talking early in the year, and I was I was talking about how I thought roughly 200 schools would close. And everybody, including the data people at NCEA, were saying, oh, we don't think it's going to be more than 120. And then they just came out with a report basically saying that that number was right. So it's, it's for a really simple reason. We had schools close, uh, which is the least favorite part of my job for sure. And our enrollment year over year is down. But because of that, that surge since July 15th, we were going to be down 17%. That's where we were headed, which is just like a mind-blowing number. The national number the NCA came out with is uh, just over 6%. So we were headed to a very dramatic outcome which we had the prospect of closing dozens of schools. So what turned it around was the whole in-person side, the in-person and the commitment to technology and serving people any way we could help. So, But the, the economics are really simple. If people say, like, why would you close schools and so forth? When the pandemic came, it's not that there was COVID. What caused the financial issues in Catholic schools is that because of COVID, people lost their jobs and people who are hourly workers tend to be lower income people. They suddenly either had no hours or dramatically reduced hours. To go to a Catholic school, you have to pay tuition. We have to charge tuition because we our teachers don't work for free. And so the tuition money covers the salaries of our teachers. So schools that have had some substantial drops in their tuition revenue or substantial drops in enrollment because you didn't have enough people who could pay tuition. They simply couldn't make the case plausibly that they'd be able to pay the teachers for the entire school year that was coming up. And so those are the schools that closed. The biggest one that got, the state that got hit the hardest is California, who is not allowed to open. And basically Gavin Newsom kind of doing this all kind of over the top in a bunch of different ways, as you know, just lost a a court case on the church side of things. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. So basically schools where a school that is the reason you, you mentioned and the reason it's true that lower income schools were more at risk than middle class schools because the middle class was simply not hit as hard as low-income working-class families. Middle-income families largely kept their jobs. They just had to work remote, so it was inconvenient, but it wasn't as devastating. Low-income people lost their job, and the prospect for getting another job was very, very grim. And so that's what happened. And so that's where most, for us, 
we invested very heavily long before. I've only been in the job a little over a year and a half, early on for a preschool. And so that whole early childhood ed piece is actually a large piece of our each of our elementary schools. And that, that decision to do that made a lot of sense. But in a pandemic where parents are at home, they just decided to keep the little kids at home and save the money. Mm-hmm. Because there was a lot of uncertainty. So even if they had the money, they feel well, I'm home anyway. The reason I, I, I put them in for a lot of people, frankly, was I have to go, both of us work, so we can't leave a three-year-old at home or a four-year-old at home. But if they were home, they certainly can. We lost roughly year to year about 1,600 students, decline in students. Out of that number, 80% of those were preschool children. Mm-hmm. So we only lost a couple hundred. So in the middle of a global pandemic, putting aside the preschool thing, all of them are going to come back next year. As soon as their parents go back to work in their offices, they're not going to leave them in their houses unattended. So all of those kids will come back. And so we're net down a few hundred kids in the middle of the worst pandemic, the worst economic situation we've seen in the archdiocese for at least half a century. Um, So in our case, because we had this surge, we didn't get hit as hard as other people did. But we, we all got hit to some degree. And the other thing which people don't necessarily understand is the church is a three-legged stool, meaning it's churches, it's schools, and it's kind of a nonprofit service slash Catholic charity side of things. And all three of them got hit simultaneously. And then so and philanthropy undergirds all of it. And so uh, that caused a huge problem. So the church didn't have the capacity it normally has to step in and save a school because the collection money was down dramatically, the philanthropy was down dramatically, and our school revenue was down dramatically. So there was no money coming in from before care or after care. The early childhood piece disappeared. The bingo revenue, which sounds kind of old school, but we had a lot of schools that had a lot of money from bingo still. Well, that obviously, you know, all disappeared. Tom, I know we're just about out of time, but we really want to talk to you because I think you are a real visionary in the field of education. We want to talk to you quickly about this exciting new venture, this new virtual academy called Lumen Barum that you're launching. I watched the video, it's beautiful on the website, that you seek to be Catholic, exceptional, and joyful. Can you give us a brief description of this Lumen Verum Academy that you're launching? Sure. Anyone who wants to go on the site, it's lumenverumacademy.org. It's it's really simple. Uh, a lot of our high schools, like Catholic high schools around the country, have been secularized to one degree or another. So I wanted to create a school in which faithful parents, who their highest priority was making sure that when the kids walked across the graduation stage, that their faith was still intact, that this is basically the school for them. And then I also seeing technology not being done very well, but it also seeing what the opportunities of technology was, uh, but we didn't tap it when we were doing kind of in a rush basis last spring. I wanted to have a school that one, was able to grab kids from all across the archdiocese, not be bound to a specific location, because I wanted everybody across the archdiocese to be able to benefit from it. And then on the instructional side, I wanted the faculty to be recruited not strictly from ed school, education schools locally, but the faculty would would actually become anybody in the English-speaking world. So suddenly the level of intellectual play within the school can be astonishingly at a different level. And so I've been talking to some of the people we're all kind of mutual friends with, and everybody I've asked, whether they're a professor, whether they're writing books or teachers in other states or just really interesting people, our ability to kind of transmit the best of Western civilization, a classic education, broadly speaking, the Catholic intellectual tradition 
and an unapologetic statement and belief in the moral teachings of the Catholic Church with no political correctness and none of this, you know, like we have in Boston that we tore down a an Abraham Lincoln statue, which is in the middle of all this racial issue. Now, like even the guy who freed the slaves is now viewed as, you know, he's got a mark on him. So there's some of this stuff that I think culturally is going a little haywire. And I want, I want the kids, the reason it says joyful, I want the kids to be proud to be Catholic. I want them to be joyful joyful and understanding it's a welcoming faith it's a joyful faith and it's one that you know i joke sometimes to my evangelical friends that uh we did west we created western civilization and wrote the new testament you know what have you done other than complain the last 500 years <laughs> so i'm saying that you know jokingly i'm, I'm friends with you know uh, uh, people of all faiths but but the point is the the catholic contribution to art to music to architecture to human rights to rights of women to sci- the scientific field or absolutely astonishing. And I fear a lot of kids who graduate Catholic schools don't even know about it. So I want them to stand up tall. I want them to be proud. I want them to understand their faith. I want them to be able to articulate. I want them to be able to defend it and to do so with a with a joyful disposition. There's a great need for it. As you say, even in Catholic schools and too many Catholic schools, too much of the, the general modern culture is replacing the rich Catholic intellectual tradition that it sounds like Lumen Verum Academy will be showcasing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about that. And I'm really happy, Tom, that, that you've been so successful in uh, keeping those Catholic schools open in Boston. I wish that everyone across the country had that same ability, like our friends in California, for instance, who are, haven't been able to open. And we'll keep looking out for your great work. So thank you for joining us, Tom. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday, when one of the most physically disgusting and repulsive human beings imaginable, a leper, will come up to Jesus, kneel down, and beg Jesus to cure him. Lepers, as you know, have a bacterial infection that eats away at their flesh and gives them a sickening odor. At the time of Jesus, leprosy was considered so contagious that those with it were quarantined for life apart from the rest of the community. They had no one with whom to associate or care for them, except other lepers. They were cut off from their family, from their jobs, from the synagogue, and from the temple. They were outcasts, ostracized from all things human. They had to wear ripped clothes and keep their hair messy so that others would be able to spot them easily from a distance. Whenever they needed to travel to obtain anything, they were mandated by Mosaic Law to shout out, Unclean! Unclean! and forbidden to come within 50 feet of others. Anyone who touched a leper became in Jewish mentality likewise unclean. That the man in today's gospel broke all convention to come close to Jesus was already a sign of his desperation. What was Jesus' reaction to this miserable, nauseating creature on his knees before him? Most of those around Jesus, like the apostles, almost certainly ran away from the leper lest they catch his contagion. Jesus, however, moved in the opposite direction. To the leper's plea of faith, if you wish you can make me clean, Jesus, filled with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched the leper. We could almost hear the shrieks of onlookers 2,000 years later. It was probably the first time a non-leper had touched him in years. Then Jesus said the words that were the answer to the man's prolonged prayers, I do will it be made clean. He was thoroughly and immediately made whole. Jesus gave him instructions to go see the priest and go through the rites of Mosaic law for testimony of a cure of leprosy so that he, so long an outcast, could legitimately return to the human community. At this time in which so many have been quarantined and isolated, where so many are afraid to draw close to those who may have the COVID-19 
coronavirus. This was something far worse. And Jesus did the equivalent of kissing somebody with COVID. He touched the leper in his leprosy, and he worked a miraculous cure. This gospel is a beautiful one to have three days before we begin the holy season of Lent. During Lent, each of us is called to approach Jesus with faith, with all our sins that are eating away our soul, just like Hansen's disease destroys our bones and skin. We're called to say to Jesus, if you wish, you can make me clean. Jesus, each Lent, wants to say to us in return, I do will it be made clean. Lent is that time of cleansing. The practice of prayer helps us to overcome the leprosy of egocentrism to put God first. Practice of almsgiving helps us to conquer the leprosy of selfishness and put others ahead of ourselves. Practice of fasting helps us to overcome our pleasure-seeking and making our bellies our gods so that we can learn how to hunger for what God hungers. It's a period of purification. Each of us needs to be humble enough, to be smart enough, to recognize our true state and come to God so that he, moved with compassion, can stretch out his merciful hand and touch us. This Sunday, as you know, is also St. Valentine's Day and the 40th International Observance of World Marriage Sunday. We're called to focus our attention on the blessing of marriage as the mutual committed love of husband and wife, to thank married couples for all the sacrifice they make to build loving families that are the building block of society in the cells of the mystical body of Christ the Church. While we celebrate the gift of marriage, it's also a day to take note of the various threats to marriage. The same evil one who tried to sabotage the marriage of Adam and Eve at the beginning goes after every marital bond. There are various ways individual marriages and those in them can become leprotic. The great leprosy is lust, which turns love from mutual self-giving to reciprocal utilitarianism and harmonious hedonism. Many with the vocations to marriage never make it because their heart has been eaten away by porn and various sexual sins. Others within marriage give in to sins against fidelity like adultery or against indissolubility like easy divorce or against fruitfulness like contraception. Even the very notion of marriage can be eaten away by culture in the courts, making marriage a husbandless or wifeless or intentionally childless institution, just like a leper loses body parts. In the context of all of these soul-eating bacterias, this weekend we go before Jesus the Divine Bridegroom and beg, if you wish, you can make us clean. You can purify our eyes and hearts and homes and marriages. Jesus wants to give us the gift of chastity, of purity of heart, of reverence for his image and for others, so that our love may be truly loving. We enter into prayerful conversation with him and ask for that gift. But just like with the leper in the gospel, Jesus doesn't just say magic words, heal us, and then let us do whatever we please. He wants to lead us to greater faith, but he needs our cooperation. We see what happened in the gospel. As soon as the leper got what he wanted, he started to do his own thing. St. Mark tells us that Jesus wanted him to grow in trusting obedience and therefore commanded him to go to the Levitical priests. He also warned him sternly, see, you tell no one anything. Jesus well knew that if news of the miracle became widespread, everyone would be coming to him first as a free medical doctor, and secondly as the long-awaited Messiah whom they would interpret in political terms, as someone who would boot the Romans and reinstitute a Davidic temporal kingdom. Jesus wanted to avoid those misconceptions because he had come not as a new political candidate or a new Hippocrates, but a savior. The former leper's response to Jesus' instruction and warning was to ignore it totally. Rather than go to the priests, rather than say nothing about the cure except to them, St. Mark tells us that the man went away and began to publicize the whole matter, spread the report abroad so that it was impossible for Jesus to enter a town openly. He therefore had to remain outside in deserted places where people kept coming to him from everywhere, exactly validating Jesus' concerns that underlined his warning and command. 
While the man was cured of the leprosy of his skin and body parts, he wasn't cured of the leprosy of a partially hardened heart. When he heard the voice of the Lord telling him not to do something, he blew him off. He likely thought he had justification for doing so. After all, Jesus had given him the greatest gift of his life, and what would it hurt, he probably told himself, publicly to praise him for it. But the simple fact of the matter is that he blatantly disobeyed the Lord's command. This leprosy of a partially hardened heart, a heart that hears the Lord's voice but responds selectively according to his own desires, needs, or categories, can affect anyone, including us. When we listen attentively and put into practice Jesus' words about praying always, but harden our heart to his words about confessing our sins to those he has sent with the power to forgive and retain sins in his name. We may seek to enflesh his words about crossing the road to help someone in need when we feel like it, but harden our hearts to Jesus' word about welcoming strangers as we would welcome him when we don't feel like it. We may faithfully keep the commandment to honor our parents, but violate his command to forgive our siblings 70 times, 7 times. We may faithfully heed his word about the mass, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, but totally ignore his commission to go out to every creature and proclaim the gospel. If God speaks to us a word we want to hear, then often we'll do it. But if the Lord challenges us to do something we don't want to do, often we, like the cured leper in the gospel, will ignore his voice and listen instead to our own. This challenge is quite relevant to us in the two applications we've considered. This Lent, the Lord calls us to holiness through uniting ourselves to him in prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. He'll tell us on Ash Wednesday, when you fast, when you give alms, when you pray, will we heed his words or do our own thing? Likewise, with regard to love, marriage, sex, and family, do we do what Jesus teaches us through his church? Or do we do what Hugh Hefner or Harvey Milk or RuPaul teach us, abetted by the media? Jesus wants to cleanse us, but do we want to cooperate with that purifying work? At the end of our consequential conversation with him this Sunday, he won't tell us, see that you tell no one anything. Rather, he'll reiterate the Great Commission when he tells us, go to the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. He wants us to share with others the same healing gospel he gives us, the same truth that sets us free, the same words of eternal life that will raise us from sin and death. He will reach out his hand to touch and cleanse us, but he wants us on our part not to let go of his hand, but to journey with him in holiness each day, in our love life and marriages, in ordinary time and Lent, in short, always. But will our encounter with him have that type of life-changing impact? God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 